Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. We're joined today by the Athletic's Adam Crafton, plus David Ornstein and Jack Pitt-Brook for their views on the North London Derby. And also the Athletic's Greg Evans will be here to talk about Aston Villa and why he thinks they are going places after beating Manchester United on Saturday. So we'll start the pod then by reflecting on yesterday's North London derby with the Athletics' David Ornstein, Jack Pitbrook and Adam Crafton. Let's start with uh, you, Jack, because the media always starts with the negative, doesn't it? Your piece today says, obviously, a defeat like this raises questions about the head coach, but it's so much more than that. There's more than enough blame to go around, I think. Uh, Nuno, it's not going well for Nuno. Three defeats in a row and three bad defeats in the Premier League, I think his position will come under a lot of scrutiny. And to be honest, I'd be surprised if he's there next season. That said, this isn't entirely his fault. You know, it's not his fault that he got the job 10 weeks after Mourinho was sacked, uh, having initially been discarded as an option at the start of that process. And it's also not his fault, you know, the sort of long-term structural decline in the Tottenham squad and the messy strategy over the last few years and the disastrous decision to sack Pochettino and replace him with Mourinho and the failure to renew the squad under Pochettino. And, you know, there's so much stuff that went on before Nuno showed up that we can't pin this only on him. You mentioned Pochettino there and the squad. And I I was thinking about this last night and, and talking to a friend that Whilst obviously there is probably a desire from Spurs fans to to get Pochettino back and, you know, he's some kind of sacrificial lamb in everything that's gone on with Tottenham. I do wonder if you if you go right back to around, literally right back here, actually, to around Kyle Walker going and Kieran Trippier going and his treatment of those two and maybe Danny Rose around then as well. And, and that feels to me around the time... Spurs started to, I don't know, lose their way slightly. Would that be fair? I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem was they didn't sell enough players. Right. Lots of people think that Pochino's big frustration was they didn't buy players that he wanted. And that's kind of half true. But I think the full story is that they didn't they didn't sell the players that Pochino wanted them to sell. Like if Pochino had got his way, they would have sold Delhi, they would have sold Danny Rose, they would probably would have sold Dyer, they would have sold Orderworld when he didn't want to be there anymore. They would have sold Ericsson. And if they'd sold all those players five years ago, they would have made hundreds of millions of pounds, which they could have then reinvested in new players. And if they'd done that, then Spurs would have maintained some kind of energy and rejuvenation rather than just going stale in the back end of the Pochettino era, which is what happened. So really, it was the failure to sell, I think, that that undermined him. But Jack, during that period, Tottenham weren't buying. And so we don't know how good they would have been at buying. And the evidence since suggests, and it's not an easy um, skill to buy well. And um, so I guess that's the big imponderable, how well they would have rejuvenated that squad, despite many of us thinking that 
they now appear to have missed the trick by not utilizing that Pochettino peak well enough. That's true, but we don't know. But they did buy like some of their buys were good around then. Like mm. Son was a really good buy. Alderweireld was a really good buy. Trippy was a pretty good buy. Wanyama was a pretty good buy for a short period of time. So there was a you know there was a moment in the middle of the last decade where they bought pretty well. And if they just if they'd sold those, all the players I just listed and made all that money. If just a few of the buys had gone well, then I think they could have continued to play that kind of aggressive, energetic style of football, which they did under Pochettino. And maybe if they'd done that, maybe he'd still be there. I don't know. But I think they'd probably be in, in a better shape now than they currently are, having had this you know, very, very messy sort of transfer strategy over the last two seasons. Do you think hopes are higher amongst the Arsenal fan base than the Tottenham fan base? At the moment, both of you. Jack, you go first. Yeah, I mean, after yesterday, you'd say yes, just because Arsenal were so, so much better than Tottenham. I was really surprised by how much better they were than Tottenham. Their fans have to be excited. If you can't get excited about a game like that, then you're you know, you're in the wrong place. David? I'd cautiously say so. Um, but coming into the match, and we did a YouTube video on this very subject, Jack, me and Amy Lawrence, um, in which, you know, Jack expressed quite a bit of optimism around Tottenham's long-term hopes and I tend to agree with that in terms of their stadium rebuild, their training grounds, some of the work that's gone on to create a really solid foundation, the academy, some of the appointments on the recruitment side and on the coaching side that should stand Tottenham in relatively good stead. The problem at the moment is that Nuno, as Jack mentions, at the end of a protracted recruitment process, seemed to be the only credible option at that moment in time. And it makes you wonder whether he's a holding manager until they get more options in, in say, next summer's, tra- you know, uh, I say transfer window. There's no managerial transfer window, but there may be some more uh, um, more desirable coaches available that Daniel Levy wants, really wants to take Tottenham into the future. Whereas I think with Arsenal, they have clearly pinned their colours to the mast, the ownership, the club on Mikel Arteta, and they're backing him to lead them into the future. That's why there was so much controversy and unhappiness around their poor starts of the season. And it's probably why there was so much euphoria around yesterday's win, because this project has to work under Arteta. Whereas I don't think it has to work under Nuno. And that may explain why Arsenal are more optimistic today than perhaps Tottenham. Adam, having said all of that, every week one result just completely changes the perception of a fan base towards their manager. Yeah. And what was it, like 18 days ago, Nuno was manager of the month. Three games in a row. One of the first three games of the season. It's incredible, really. Beat, beat, beat Manchester City, who looks like the best team on the world in the world on Saturday against Chelsea. I feel quite sorry for Nuno because I think you know some of I think some of the coverage around him has become it's almost like forgotten that this guy was actually really good at Wolves um, for the vast majority of his time there, and he's coached at really good teams abroad as well. Clearly, he needs a bit of time. Part of the problem is you know if you had if you knew that your boss was seventh eighth choice perhaps. Uh, based on you know certainly what's been reported over the last few months, and you knew that even when he got that job, he was given a very short-term commitment by those above him. Of course, that's going to give him a credibility deficit, and I think that's I think that's a significant problem. I think it, you know it also doesn't help that you've got one of the standard setters in the dressing room in Harry Kane. You know, maybe in normal circumstances, after a game like that yesterday or at half time, 
he could be getting into the players. But if I'm another player in that dressing room, I'd probably be looking at him and thinking, well, you weren't here at the start of pre-season. Um, you've overshadowed the start of our season. So I think there's a credibility deficit for key people in Tottenham's environment that makes it very, very difficult to create a challenging winning environment. And that's going to be the thing that Nuno has to get past because if he doesn't, then it's hard to see it, you know, him having the success that he would like to have there. Yeah, I definitely think that that kind of credibility deficit, as Adam puts it in the dressing room, is and will be a really big issue for Nuno. You know, you know what players are like. They, they sense when a manager doesn't have complete authority and they'll know that the fact that he's got this two-year contract means that the clock is already ticking. And frankly, the, you know, this Tottenham dressing room have got rid of better managers than Nuno in the two in the last two years. And watching the game yesterday, it, the, what it really reminded me of was those games like right at the end of the Pochettino era or towards the end of the Mourinho era when you could tell that the players didn't, it didn't really look like they were that interested in executing the manager's plans on the pitch. And that was really the most worrying thing about it. Jack, when, when did he start pre-season? Was he about a week into it when Nuno started? Nuno, I think Nuno was appointed on a Wednesday, I think on a Wednesday evening and pre-season started on the Monday. Mm-hmm. I think it was about four or five days before that they that they finally gave him the It was job. even interesting, those figures around Tottenham having run the least in the league. I mean, surely there's perhaps some sort of connection between a disrupted pre-season and those figures. But there was also, I remember when Mourinho left Manchester United, for example, their figures in the months that followed Mourinho's exit also showed that they were running the least in the league. So it's maybe issues that precede Nuno as well from, from from that side of things. You're right. There's two slightly different issues here. One is that the squad as a whole is much less fit after having been managed by Mourinho for 17 months. You know, Tottenham used to have the best running stats in the country under Pochettino. They have some of the worst fitness stats under Mourinho. You know, that is a big drop-off. And Nuno, you know, it's going to take a while to rebuild that. But the second issue, which is that there's very specific circumstances, which means that Spurs players are not particularly fit. You know, Caden and Dombele both missed a bit of... Both had difficult pre-seasons because they both tried and failed to leave the club. The Dubrovnik three took a while coming back. Uh, after you know, They had a nice little holiday on the Adriatic, which meant that they weren't training properly. Various other players are carrying injuries. Son came back from injury quickly. Dyer came back from injury quickly. So there's not that many players at Tottenham at the moment who say are 100% fit. The Dubrovnik three is it couldn't sound more athletic if it tried, really. There must be a long read coming on the uh, on the Dubrovnik. I'm angling to get sent <laughs> Dubrovnik over there, Mark. three, David. I think it was a really interesting point that the boys made on the dressing room and a sharp contrast to Arsenal because we saw with Unai Emery how despite executives, board level backing and and a desperation for him to succeed, as they weren't, of course, a club who chopped and changed, hence Arsene Wenger, 22 years in charge. And they, they staked a lot on Unai Emery. However, he didn't have any credit in the bank with staff around the club or the dressing room and he didn't have many allies. And once the dressing room was gone, so was he. By contrast, Mikel Arteta built some really strong relationships behind the scenes at Arsenal when he was a player there. In fact, his relationships with many of the staff were better than that with many of the players. And so when he comes back, it's almost like this genuine point that we make around managerial uh, pressure of, no, the players need to pull their finger out. Well, with Arteta, unless it gets like, a hell of a lot worse than it's been recently. I think he's in a really strong position because of that structural support around him at pretty much every level of the club. And he's elevated himself within the structure from head coach to manager in a slimmed down, more Wenger-like sort of hierarchy. And 
that places him in a much stronger position than somebody like Nuno. David mentioned managerial options and I'm, I'm sort of doing this a little bit off the off the top of my head, but Nuno was maybe, uh, by the time they got to him, I think, David, you said the best option available. And I, and I wonder whether it was like the best out of work option available. And I look at, I look at so many appointments now and they are of out of work Managers of all all having various success. I mean, Juventus have gone back to Allegri. Allegri was free. Paris Saint Germain when they brought in Pochettino. Pochettino was free. Same with same with Nuno. Tuchel was out of work when Chelsea brought Tuchel in. Are we in an era financially? Do we think where the clubs are going? We can only appoint an out of work manager. We can't go and get. Well, Graham Potter's the standard. You know, one to throw in. Can't go and get Graham Potter because actually in the current in the current situation, it'd be too expensive. I think that's a really valid point because, you know, a name that you haven't mentioned that often crops up is Brendan Rodgers. And when you make inquiries around why he might not have made a move to Tottenham or elsewhere, the answer that comes back is always that he's incredibly expensive to get out of Leicester. He's on a really robust contract that as and when a move is going to happen, it's going to cost a king's ransom, especially if he's doing well at Leicester at the time. Sean Dyche at Burnley is on a contract that has put off a lot of potential suitors in terms of the compensation that would be owed to him and then the salary that would need to be paid. And of course, we're not mentioning in all of that the cost of sacking the manager and their staff. I remember Conte at Chelsea had like 30 members of his backroom team. There was a photo in his first week in charge there. And Nuno at Wolves, uh, I think it was a slimmed down staff that came to Tottenham actually. So in this era of uh, financial restraint and COVID um, affected budgets uh, and the need to spend everything you have seemingly on players, salaries, academy, etc. Managerial payments are not at the top of your agenda. That was definitely the case with Tottenham's search this summer. You know, they were, I, Graham Potter, as we know, has a release clause at Brighton, which I believe preyed on Tottenham's mind when they were considering looking at him. Most of the other options that they did look at were on their way out of jobs, whether that was Flick, Fonseca, Gattuso, generally guys who they could get for nothing. And so if Nuno were to go, and to be honest, I think he will go at some point this season, uh, I'm sure that Tottenham would probably be, you know, fishing in the same waters again, looking at other out-of-work managers. Are they, Adam, turning down these opportunities as well, like a Graham Potter and a Rodgers and various others, and and less attracted to some of these top clubs than at times gone by? Maybe in the summer, where Tottenham, you know, seemed a little bit all over their place in their search, and it was hot, I think... There was probably very few managers during that period who felt like Spurs had identified them as their special person that they really want, you know, they really wanted the club. It almost felt like they were just calling around, saying, you know, could he do a job? Can we have a chat? Let's see how it goes. I think Brendan Rodgers might become interesting. You know, Leicester haven't started the season fantastically well. I think we said on this podcast last week, you know, it feels like their relevance is going to be really difficult to sustain this season um, in comparison to the last couple of years, just because, you know, there's only so long you can overperform in terms of recruitment and performance. That's maybe the one that I would watch most closely, Brendan Rodgers, if you know, if Leicester continue to stutter a little bit, Spurs continue to stutter, maybe that becomes one that becomes more appealing both to Rodgers and Leicester. Right, Jack, we shall uh, let you go here. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Next on the pod, uh, David, from your column today, discussions from Premier League shareholders about growth of the game and meaningful matches abroad. So the Premier League clubs, the shareholders, had their latest meeting in London last week and they run through an absolute ton of different uh, subjects and talking points. And and one of the biggest ones, I think understandably, is growth of the Premier League and revenues, uh, especially coming out of the... COVID era, um, hopefully. And, you know, any company worth its salt is looking at expansion and how to tap into different markets and satisfy audiences all over the world. And those revenue streams will, of course, help clubs and hopefully make it the biggest possible spectacle. And so, yeah, in the past, famously 2008, Richard Scudamore, when he was in charge of the Premier League, this 39th game concept popped up and he wanted it to happen. I think it was about uh, five stadiums overseas playing a regular season round of fixtures with clubs earning a huge amount of money. It was opposed by the FA, by UEFA, by FIFA, uh, British government, I think, and it got shot down. But Richard Scudamore did say it would happen at some point in the future. Now, this is far less specific, which is why I'm reluctant to use that phrase. That word, 39th game, hasn't been mentioned at all. It's genuinely just one of many points on the table for ways in which the Premier League can grow around the world. Something that's up for discussion. Uh, And the way it's sort of referred to is to create a roadmap for meaningful matches abroad and competitive matches. And you know, the, the the way it was presented to the clubs is that this is going to take, you know, years of uh, discussion and uh, lots of steps will need to be gone through to make this even potentially uh, realistic. And it's probably going to start with the first step of being uh, an enhanced pre-season tournament in somewhere like the US, maybe even next summer. I mean, they're not far off having those already, are they? Yeah. I mean, you know, the internet, whatever it's called, the international series or this, exactly. that, and the other. I know that's more European. No, yeah. So, so I suppose there are two points there. One, they're already doing that, which must increase their revenue streams. Two, are they looking at this because they're worried that the organisers of that will increase their power? I don't know. And it would seem an obvious um, way of counteracting that if that is a fear. But it feels to me to be genuinely in their minds, and I don't want to link this too closely to the the collapsed European Super League proposal and previous ideas and ideas of other leagues as well. I think La Liga have looked into this and it, it sort of flopped. And Serie A, have they taken... Uh, a game or a cup final to different parts of the world. So I think it's genuinely just identifying potential areas of growth and seeing this as something that is worthy of further discussion. And, and, and it's not anywhere close. This is like a, there's nothing agreed that it's not in the current plans. It's like a, a, a talking point to be discussed 
and it may happen in many years' time, which even the cynics think is, or many of the cynics think to their disgust is is maybe inevitable. I kind of think the the, the automatic reaction, Adam, is to, is to be you know be full of disgust when when you hear these because it's like oh, here we here we go again. But then actually, if you just take a step back. They wouldn't really be doing their jobs, would they, if they weren't putting ideas like this on the table every now and then? I kind of think that. I kind of think that politically as well. If people don't float ideas out for a discussion, then there will never be any progress anywhere. And at the moment, we're in a world where ideas get floated out and then they just get shot down straight away. Yeah, it sometimes takes 99 bad ideas to make a good idea because you talk through them. If you have a very global product, it's obvious that you would discuss this and weigh up the pros and cons and and always be thinking about it. I think what's quite interesting is I know the International Champions Cup, which is the pre-season tournament, the organisers of that have sometimes been a little bit frustrated over the years because they often get the sort of drips and drabs of squads turning up for these games, often because of tournaments in the summer or sometimes because some of the big name stars don't do a full pre-season. So they don't necessarily get the full bang for their buck, despite, you know, managing to fill out stadiums and in, in most cases. But they, they sometimes feel a little bit left down and certainly it would help, you know, from a broadcast point of view to sell those competitions if you knew there was going to be all of those best players definitely turning up. So I know there's been some frustration there over the years. My two concerns would be, First of all, like, would it just be one round of fixtures? Because if there is that, for, that therefore means, you know, half the teams have one home game less than the rest of them. And then the other is, you know, where are we taking these fixtures? Is this something that ends up in Riyadh and Doha? And then we have all different uh, ethical concerns again. Or is this, you know, something that's a little bit more wholesome? Or is it just the highest bidder? So I think there's concerns that would come out of it. But, in, you know, in principle, I think it's it's increasingly difficult to sustain the argument that the local fan, the domestic fan, is intrinsically more important to the businesses of Premier League football clubs than the supporter abroad. You know, as as much as we may feel that emotionally when you look at the balance sheets and international broadcast agreements and all that kind of thing, well, it's very hard to sustain that argument if I'm a bit if I'm looking at it from a business rather than an emotional point of view. So I think it's you know it's fair enough that this would be on the table, but I would struggle to see it coming off because of you know all those forces that blocked it this last time and also all those forces that blocked the Super League. It's another very easy populist position for a government, for example, to take to say. English games should be played on English soil. I think the strategic markets that the Premier League have identified are USA, China, India, Indonesia and Brazil. And that's part of a wider thing. It's not necessarily specifically for these matches, but that's where they see um, Mm. scope for greater fan engagement and growth. Secondly, on number of matches, this is nowhere near that sort of level at this point. It's kind of just on the work stream of of stuff that these subgroups and committees within the Premier League are going to talk about going forward. And very possibly, it never comes to fruition. And if it does, as I said, I think it would be quite a long time away. And then the reaction has been, from what I've seen, almost completely negative uh, from fans since since we published the story this morning, um, which I totally understand from their perspective. But you touch upon a really good point that I've been hearing from executives around football for years. We all obviously in this country have quite a narrow-minded vision. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I just mean that we're um, completely submerged in our 
own fandom and our own work and and we we love a lot of it we, we're the ones that go to the stadiums etc but some of us don't realize maybe myself included the scale of frenzied support in some of these territories around the world where huge amounts of money is coming into the premier league to fund many of these transfers and infrastructural builds through television rights and merchandise purchases and and that sort of thing and for years now, not, you know, way predating the latest round of Super League conversations, these club executives were acutely aware that if football, Premier League football, European football doesn't embrace some of these markets, they will not only not fulfil their potential, which filters back in, in some ways, whether we like it or not, to fans, they will also be overtaken by other sports and industries that will tap into these markets, fandoms, revenue streams. And of course, the Premier League and European football leagues want to be at the forefront. They want to grow as big as possible. So Adam's right. It's impossible for them not to discuss this. And at the same time, the, the backlash is understandable locally. David, we will leave it there. Thank you. See you soon. Thanks very much. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Finally on today's pod, let's talk Villa with The Athletic's Villa writer Greg Evans who is at Old Trafford as Villa beat Manchester United uh, 1-0. Um, not not just on Saturday when they were very impressive, Greg, but overall they've had an impressive start to the season. If you kind of forget the opening day at Watford, but they've had an impressive start to the season. 
Yeah, hi Mark. I think it's been a, a great start to the season. Actually, the the last couple of weeks have been particularly impressive. To go to Manchester United, a, a stadium where Villa had only won once in thirteen years, and go and put a performance on like that on the back of a three 0 win over Everton, I thought was really impressive. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a very disruptive start for Villa because. They've obviously lost their best player. They've had to rebuild. Uh, they've had players coming back from international duty. And those first couple of games were difficult. Now, I always thought the Watford game would be hard going there. You know, a newly promoted team with, with so much momentum behind them. But they've showed that, you know, what they're about. And um, they've reacted to that defeat and, and they were excellent on Saturday. Would it be fair to say that there is a, a plan at every level of the club? I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah, I mean, what's so impressive about Villa is that it's, they're progressing every single season. You know, we, we all know the story now that, that Dean, Dean Smith took over in 2018. They won promotion. They stayed up in the following season, finished mid, uh, mid-table last season. And I think anybody who has watched Villa this season will agree with me that, that they look like a, a top-half team now. And if they can finish in the top half, that's, an, that's progression again. And it's so rare in football now that you see a club progressing every single season and this will be Villa's fourth year in a row so if they do it's you know incredible achievement Adam I was just thinking back to that that real sliding doors moment that disallowed goal for Sheffield United um, at Villa Park which I think was was the first game after lockdown yeah um, yeah. when Villa were sort of hovering around the relegation zone and looked really vulnerable and they ended up drawing that game and you wonder where they would be if that goal had been if that goal had been given. I saw highlights of the game on Saturday. I thought they looked really good. I also think they were playing against a team that probably suits them quite well because of the speed of Villa on the counter-attack and you know the style of play that they have. What do you think the ambition is for Villa this season? What's a good season for Villa? Is it just top half? Is it, you know, do they sense an opportunity when you look at Arsenal and Spurs? You know, can they be what Leicester were? for example, over the last couple of years? The ambition from the ownership is certainly to get back into European football. Dean Smith will say the same, but I think the toughest part for Premier League teams is moving from that mid-table position into the sort of top seven or eight teams because, you know, you've got you've got six, five or six teams who are elite teams and it's so difficult to to, to catch up with them, isn't it? Because of the years of building that, that they've previously had on, on Villa and other teams. But again, you know, I've used this word already, but it's just progression. If Villa can finish higher than they did last season, then I think Dean Smith will see that as a good season. I think the owners will see that there's continuity there and that the future still looks bright. Okay, can I ask you about the, um, they obviously scored a goal from a set piece this week and there's been a lot made about Villa hiring a set piece coach over the summer. I know Manchester United did as well, which is maybe a bit of a counter argument against it, given they scored a set piece against them. Just from you, you've obviously seen every game of Villa's this season. How much of an impact do you think it's had in reality? Is it overplayed or is it something that's really created a substantial change? I don't mean to take the credit away from Austin McPhee, Villa's new set-piece coach, because I think he's done an excellent job and, and clearly Villa are much more of a threat from set-pieces this season. But Villa have scored the same amount of goals from set-pieces as they did at the start of last season. They were very, very good from set-pieces. So I, I would like to judge Villa over the course of a season before saying whether Austin McPhee, the new set-piece Peace coach has made a big impact, made a big difference because Villa were great at the start of last season. It's just they tailed off towards the end of the season. So I'd like to judge it over the course of the season. I think what you're seeing from Villa now is a bit more variety with their routines. 
there are lots of different options, uh, you know, short corners, different, different well work corners, long corners, uh, Ming's coming up f- and, and flicking them on, which, which work quite well. We've also got Matt Cash now with, with his long throwing. That's certainly a new addition, something that we haven't seen last season. But yeah, I'd just like to judge him over the course of the season. It was, it was funny, really, because Villa scored quite late in the game, didn't they, uh, fr- from a set piece. And, and there was Dean Smith. Ali Gunnar Solskjaer on the touchline and then either side of the two managers was the set piece, set piece coach and I, I was with I was, I was, on the, I was with Larry Whitwell at the game and we we were looking at each other kind of thinking this is the era of a set piece coach isn't it it's crazy <laughs> but it's because of the selling of Grealish and and the players brought in there is a there's a sort of tendency to focus on Villa's business in the transfer market and I think actually if you focus which is understandable but if you always focus on Villa's business in the transfer market, you're not noticing some of the kids that are really developing that, that Villa are bringing through. Grealish himself, obviously, came through the, the Villa Academy. But they've got some really good young players, Greg, haven't they? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you highlighted that, Mark. Yeah, they, they really have. And, and the work that they've done in the academy is incredible. I mean, I've never seen a club so aggressive um, in their recruitment strategy at youth level. Villa are hiring 14, 15 and 16-year-olds, you know, for, for, for quite ridiculous money, really. And and they're doing it on a large scale and have been for 18 months now. There were lots of clubs interested in various players 12 to 15 months ago. And Villa Villa's sales pitch was basically, come to Villa, we're going to win everything. And the fact that they won the Youth Cup last year you know, was proof of, of what they're trying to do. There are players now that are in the match day, sort of the match day 20 as it is now, um, every single week. You've got Jacob Ramsey playing and starting every week in, in midfield. I think he's brought a, a brought a different dynamic to the midfield. I think Villa fans were very frustrated that they didn't sign another central midfielder this season. They tried to sign James Ward-Prowse. That deal was too expensive for them. The one issue was that they thought they were going to be light in midfield but Jacob Ramsey has come in and really helped the balance in, in that midfield I think they've got everything right in there at the moment you've got Jaden Philogene Bidace Carney Chukwemka two two players who have made the Premier League debut already Cameron Archer who came on and made his Premier League debut after scoring at, at Chelsea last week Lamar Bogard who's who's a 17 year old central defender he's now fifth, Winston's, fifth in line Winston's son yeah isn't he? Uh, Winston's uncle yeah. uh, sorry Winston's oh, nephew Mrs nephew yeah yeah nephew. and 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 he's got another brother who, who plays for Hoffenheim as well still only a teenager so the two of them could be playing for the Netherlands together at, at, in defence in the future it's a really exciting time at Villa if, if you're a youngster and yeah, there's a, there's a clear pathway there for you. Has that aggression in the youth market has 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 that caused ripples throughout Midlands football? Is <laughs> it is it annoyed? I'm, I'm guessing by your reaction <laughs> that it's annoyed rivals. It certainly has. Yeah, they Villa strategically tried to decimate West Bromwich Albion. You know, they 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 looked at they looked at West Brom and thought they had the best academy uh, in the Midlands. They took their they took their academy director Mark Harrison took a lot of their best players and have tried to take some from Birmingham City as well and Wolverhampton Wanderers. But the the the, the main thing now is that they're just trying to lock off the the, the West Midlands market. They're trying to get you know, 10, 11, 12 year olds in. And if you're a ten year old now and you're the best player in your football team and you're looking at the clubs which which club you want to go to, you want to go to Villa because of the pathway that's there and and, and the, the fact that they're winning everything at, at youth level. We may not have even had you on though, Bruno Fernandes scored the penalty. So that, uh, they're, they're, they're the fine margins. I know we would have done anyhow. Although he did say sorry. Right. Thank you very much, both uh, Greg, Adam. Thank you. See you later. Bye. bye. Cheers, guys. 
that's it then. Thanks very much for listening. To read all the articles we've discussed today, head to theathletic.com slash football pod for a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. Dan Bardell and Flo Lloyd-Hughes are here tomorrow and then I'm back with Matt Slater on Thursday on this feed with the Business of Sport podcast. Bye for now. The Athletic.